You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 7. Return of the Hunter. My name is Miguel Alejandro Delgado, and I am 11 years old, or possibly 12. I do not know how long I was in another world. Not far down south of the city of Memphis, a riverboat stands, rotting and abandoned by the shore. It ran aground years ago, and now it is slowly sinking into the Mississippi. This is the wreck of the Natchez, the seventh of the great steamers to bear that name, and the last. I had heard that a gang of murderous thieves were using it as a hideout. They were seen coming and going from there for many months last year, and nobody had dared set foot upon it. Some said the boat was dangerous and would fall apart around your ears. Some said the desperate men were still there and would kill all who came near. And there were yet others who whispered in hushed voices that this place was haunted. I was the one who investigated. One evening in March of 1883, on overhearing my father, Francisco, discussing with an associate named Castillo, the bountiful plunder which must surely still be aboard this ship, I get the idea in my head of venturing out and returning with something of value that might make him proud of me. We could maybe afford to live clean for a while, keep him away from people like Castillo. I have seen the greedy look in that man's eyes, and I do not like to think of it mirrored in my father's. So that night, which still feels like yesterday, I tread the creaking boards of the Natchez with two friends, Ben and Mary Wheeler, both of whom are trembling with fear, making it harder to ignore my own. The smell around us is thick with wood rot, and insects swarm in wet, sticky places. We do not yet find treasure, but follow a curious bellowing sound which gets louder with each cautious footstep. On the upper deck, we slowly open the double doors of the central cabin, reserved for high-stakes gambling, and in the last rays of the dusk light we can make out the rotting carcasses of three men on the floor. They have clearly been here for some time. The fetid stench of their putrefying flesh hits us in a nauseating wave, and Mary and I rush to the riverside of the ship to empty our stomachs. Ben is holding the three sacks we brought, and saying we should take the blood-stained steel saber, the pistols, and the pocket watch on the floor to trade for food. But as I return to the doorway, I am transfixed by the sight of a strange sky inside the room. It is a round window in the air, with the light of another place entirely coming through. The roaring sound, I can now see beneath the edge of the hall, is a waterfall, and as I move towards it, I can smell new and ancient trees feel upon my cheek the mist that roils around them, and see below, from a perspective that makes me dizzy, the river at the base of the falls, winding off into the distance, 
The depth that I am perceiving here drops far lower than the waters our ship stands upon. This is an impossible sight. There is a jungle in there, a crimson leaf forest rendered in rich purple under the blue moon. I am standing with my head inside this window now, awestruck over the sight. I start to fall. My head was through this aperture, and my body rushes to catch up with it. My wonder turns to horror as a gravity snatches me from the earth. The ship rushes above my head, and I tumble down amid the cascading, crashing white walls that eclipse my senses and wash away the old war. to the surface and emerge, gasping for breath, struggling across the current to cling to a dislodged tree branch. Mary and Ben are far gone, and I am somewhere else. I drift, for how long I do not know. Time passes, and I meet a tiger. She is traveling along the bank of the river, and at the point I am succumbing to exhaustion, slipping below for the last time she pulls me from the water <laughs> the tiger towers above me purple and majestic she walks upright like a woman but runs on all fours like a cat when I have decided that she will probably not eat me and I have summoned every ounce of courage in my body we converse or rather I try to make her understand me. We go back and forth, exchanging our words, alien and unintelligible to one another. I gather that her name is Durgar Hasnar Sher Hwawana, but she lets me call her Harau. I can observe from her clothing and actions that she is hunting for food for her family and I gather that she does this all day and every day. And she is sad, so very sad. Something in her past, some great loss has twisted her up inside. I do not realize this yet, but over my time with her, I begin to make out the shape of that loss. I know that she cannot sleep deeply, fearing to dream and pushes herself onward regardless. Soon I will find that all of her people have different roles in the tribe and that there are other kinds of feline in the jungle. Panthers, jaguars and lions. The forest we are in crawls with life. It is a place of staggering beauty and unimaginable terrors. Where you can get tired just walking all the way around one of their trees. And when you look up, they just keep on going until they entwine themselves in the shrouded canopy far above. Creepers hang down, and my new companion is a creature of the air as much as the land, using her sickle-sharp claws to climb the trunks and navigate across the high boughs, spotting her prey from far above 
and swooping in for the kill like an eagle. She will pull the zebra creatures, which she calls quaggas, to the ground, holding them tight with those claws and sinking her jaws into their throats. When she needs a quick kill, if she is in danger of injury, she will go to her knife or her short spears. I am watching the greatest hunter I could ever imagine. And this world is filled with dangers. I get sick on that first evening, and things go by in a blur. I gather from the fragments recalled through delirium that I was brought back to her home in a wooden village in the treetops. Apparently the presence of a strange, ailing creature unnerves many of her compatriots, so her decision is to take me back to my home. Our journey begins with me on her back, still weak and trembling, passing in and out of consciousness, but tended to by a barely remembered feline doctor. Harau protects me when I am sleeping, for the world out there would like nothing more than to gobble me up for its dinner. In an ancient ruined city, we meet an old grey tiger who helps us to further our communications. She cannot hear, so everything we say to her must be with our bodies, our hands and our faces, acting our little plays the way I was trying to when I first met her. This is when little scraps of truth begin to be found. This is when we begin to know one another. This is where we find out that we are being haunted. We head north, back to the hole in the air, so that she can be rid of me, and return to her family. Along the way, sheltering in a cave, she begins teaching me how to fight, and more importantly, how to kill. Fashioning a toughened leather bracelet and two long, sharp claws of bone. Potentially dangerous if I can learn to use them, but even more so if I apply the venoms of the deadly creatures that slither and crawl through the jungle outside. My weaknesses are my pronounced fragility. I am so easy to kill. But my strengths, the ones that she encourages me to explore, are my fast movements and cunning in combat. I must make decisions an animal would not, and I must use the terrain to my advantage if I am to survive. In the jungle we face stampeding goats, flocks of aggressive birds, savage monkeys, crocodiles with snake faces, poisonous mongooses, not to mention other great cats. Then our journey comes to a sudden stop. Despite her skill and proficiency, she cannot prevent us from becoming captives of lions, cruel trappers of a more advanced culture closer to humans, who seek to enslave the tribes of her land. We are taken across the sea in a ship along with leopards, jaguars, and many panthers, all chained below deck. 
That is when I break free of my cage. That is when my abilities and deadly resolve are put to the test. And that is where I first kill. And it is the worst moment of my life. The lion guard I decide to dispatch dies, gulping for air, his eyes panicking and staring. There is no malice in him now, just fear, like a little cub who does not know what is happening to his body. I am dismayed at the power over life and death that I have just employed to take someone out of this world. It shakes me to my core. It is a different version of me that helps to free the cats as they prepare to execute their plan to overrun the ship and toss their captors into the ocean. What gives me strength and focus through the memories of this dreadful murder is Rao declaring to her fellow captives that I am her son. It takes a long time to get us back to the jungle again. So long that the calendar I used to keep has become almost meaningless. More than anything I want for this tiger to be happy, to reunite with her family, to no longer live only in her sad past, but to look forward to the future. It brings me great comfort to stand guard over her as she sleeps deeply at last. When we are back at the doorway beside the waterfall, this is where we must say goodbye. And I do not wish to leave anymore. I want to stay with her and talk with the darker tribe. I want to meet with the two chieftains and thank the doctor and Hral's father for keeping me alive. But I know I cannot. They have rejected me as an aberration, and Hara must do her job and read this purple world named Rama of my presence. It is a long way from the cliff edge to the opening between the realms. She will have to throw me across. She is looking down at the drop that I survived miraculously once. I know that if she does not attempt this, she cannot return home. So I tell her, as calmly as I can, that I am ready. She must do this. Lifting me up, she steps back and takes a run at the throw, gathering all her might as she bounds on two hind legs towards the edge. And I am sailing through the air. But she is with me. As we hang in space together, I wonder if Harau has made a dreadful mistake. But she holds on, and we sail across the divide and emerge into my earth.
materialize in Memphis, colliding with the wooden slatted wall at the rear of the gambling room, which splinters upon the impact of this immense purple cannonball. The ceiling buckles above us, and the ship groans and shudders. Rao's eyes are wide as we take our first breaths of the air of my country. Is it my country anymore? Was it ever? The smells of warm, wet wood fill our nostrils, overrun with the sharp odors of rancid human bodies. For a brief moment I am absurdly affronted. I think back to Mary and Ben and how they must have run from the Natchez, screaming, having seen their friend disappear down a rabbit hole. But in my time over there, I had wondered who they might bring back to the ship to scrutinize the circumstances of my disappearance. I had fancied someone might be waiting for me, or at least that they might have cleared the corpses out of their way. But from the dust on the floor, I can tell nobody has stood here in months. I can just about make out my own footprints there, undisturbed. Nobody came looking. Nobody cared. Not Ben, not Mary, not my father. I choked back a self-pitying sob and turned to the companion I must attend to. Rao is agitated and alarmed. She could not have planned to come through with me, and if she did, she is clearly in two minds about it. She begins to pace back and forth like an animal in a zoo. At least from what I understand from books, I have never been to one of these places myself. And her face is aghast, her jaw hanging open as she turns about. I reach out to touch her shoulder gently, and shivering with the effort this takes me, and what it means, I point back to the door in the air. I mime to her to go. I say her word for tribe and hold my hand over my heart before giving the okay thumb. She looks back at me for a long time and eventually shakes her head. She mimes back. We go. Your tribe. I mime back at her. My tribe. Very small. She pats me on the shoulder and shakes her head again, pointing at herself this time. Then she raises to her feet, or her hind paws, and towers above me, immediately crunching her skull against the wooden ceiling of this cabin. Wincing, she lowers her stance, and I lead her outside. She has been eyeing the dead bodies, who are the only other humans she has laid eyes on. They clearly repulse her, and understandably so. I crouch down before we leave and pick up one of the pistols. I will need to defend her. It is so heavy and bulky that I do not know where to put it, and the metal frame is wet and rusted in the spray of the waterfall. I set it back down again and run my fingers over my leather bracelet. That is my weapon from now on. This is it. I am returning to my father, 
and I am empty-handed. Nothing to show for my long absence, nothing to barter to keep him going. I chide away these thoughts as I look at Rao, framed in the doorway, gulping at the air coming off the Mississippi River. I have come back with plenty. I walk uneasily across the shifting deck and realize that the Natchez is now at an angle it was not in before. The sinking has begun in earnest. Some years before this, I will learn later, when the people began to shed their clothes and take on the savage behaviors of animals, when they became the Nahual, and a great panic spread out across the continents, this boat left New Orleans and headed north, upriver. It was filled to capacity with those trying to escape the plague, families fleeing with all their possessions, who were told to leave all luggage at the port or stay with it. There was simply no room for anything that wasn't a person. Many days of sharing a space as tight as this took its toll on them, and as they headed upriver, the hunger began to set in. They must have seen Nahual prowling the banks, because they did not stop anywhere to take on more food or fresh water. All that was important was reaching Memphis. There they could be safe. It was a journey of 400 miles, and it was very, very hot. The captain, a man named Jackson Tia, maintained that they could be civilized for long enough to reach the safety of the city. As Rao and I carefully picked our way back through the Natchez, I guided her around broken benches, smashed windows, and far too many bloodstains. They almost made it to Memphis when somebody ran the boat aground. I know for a fact that it was not Captain Teal. He was already dead and thrown over the side. I know that some of those traveling did eventually make it to Memphis. I would never be so unkind as to ask them about the circumstances of their journey. What I suspect is that most would want this ship to slip away into the waters, to remove itself from history, and thus to help them forget. Before we leave, I explore various cabins, no longer afraid of what this ship holds. Harau stays outside, walking the deck on unsteady paws. I find clothing, most likely belonging to the thieves who occupied this place before. I strip my filthy ragged garments off and push them into a corner, put on a man's pair of jeans and tie the belt up around my waist as there aren't enough notches. There is a light green shirt that just about fits me, some boots which are again two sizes too big, and two pairs of woolen socks. I retrieve a shoulder pack, inside which I place a spare shirt, my leather bracelet, my harness, my claws, and pouches with the vials of poison. When I search the cupboards of the room, I find a trinket hidden behind the boards of a drawer. 
It is a sparkling bejeweled egg that was clearly seen as a great treasure by someone. Such things cannot feed a family and perform no practical function. The treasure I had been looking for was complex, usable machinery like sewing machines, telegraph equipment, high-grade firearms, supplies of ammunition, preserved food and textiles. I wonder now how Mary, Ben and I ever hoped to get much of that back to the city. Before I set the egg down, I find that the top half comes off to reveal a cat sitting upright with emerald eyes. I smile broadly at this and take it outside to show her out. She gives a snort, but I can tell that some comfort has been derived from seeing proof that this world at least knows what a cat is. I keep the egg. It is light enough to carry, and special enough to be bartered for something useful. Before we leave, I go back to the gambling room and retrieve the pocket watch. It may not fetch much, but if I keep it on me, I can at least get used to the idea of the passing of hours once more. I take one last glance at the portal back to Rama, before lightly running back along the deck, tapping Rao as I do so, to prompt her to follow. It is time to go back, to what I previously called my home. Listening to episode 7 of Steamheart, Return of the Hunter, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Miguel, performed by Alexander Shaw. Rao, performed by Maureen Foley. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Agent in Shanghai, composed and performed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. Sardana, Creeping to Ship, Tempting Secrets, Volatile Reaction. Lost Frontier, Thunder Dreams, Drums of the Deep, and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes, including A Solemn Vow and Protean Fields, by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm.